In the last four years, CoreOS has been at the center of enterprise adoption of containers. And during that time, Brian Harrington, otherwise known as Redbeard, has seen a lot of deployments. And in this episode, Brian discusses the patterns that he has seen among successful Kubernetes deployments and the pitfalls of the less successful. How should you manage configuration? How can you avoid IP address overlap between containers? How should you log and monitor your Kubernetes cluster? And whose responsibility is it to set all that stuff up? Brian also discusses the motivation for multi-cloud deployments and how to implement multi-cloud Kubernetes. CoreOS offers a distributed systems management tool called Tectonic, which uses Kubernetes for container orchestration. And in a time when there are lots of options to choose from when it comes to managed Kubernetes providers, it was great to hear Brian describe some of the architectural decisions for building Kubernetes into Tectonic. Brian Harrington is the Chief Architect at CoreOS. Brian, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. It's great to be here today. So you've been working with Kubernetes for quite a while, and I'd like to ask some general questions to get some lessons learned from your experience, and then we'll get into some other discussions around multi-cloud and the future and whatnot. But talking about operating Kubernetes, the way that a Kubernetes cluster runs is defined by configuration. What are some tips that you have on configuration management? Well, one of the most important things that I always like to lead with is make sure that you put all your configurations in revision control. You know, it's it's one of those things that for folks who have been kind of getting more into the discipline of kind of software reliability or site reliability engineering as kind of put forth by Google and other companies out here on the West Coast that, you know, doing configuration as code and immutable infrastructure is super important. And Kubernetes is is a champion in that effect of you know, making sure that you have everything that you kind of the end result of your desired state in some type of revision control in text files makes everything much, much easier to iterate, kind of track down changes over time, see when things went wrong or when somebody accidentally fat fingered something. Super, super important. Mm-hmm. You were suggesting in your talk that users set up Jenkins to react and monitor and react, yeah, to, to react to these config changes. How would that work? Personally, I use Jenkins, and that's mainly out of muscle memory. Part of having those configurations in revision control means that having some robot who can watch those repositories for you and take action when things change makes it a lot easier to work with. You know, I'd, I'd like to be clear, like use whatever tool you're most comfortable with. You know, I I try to stay agnostic of tools, but like I said, for me, Jenkins already has the built-in plugins to watch a generic Git repo or GitHub or Bitbucket or kind of whatever tools you happen to be using today. You know, even coming down to the fact of if you just had those files sitting out on some generic web host and you were just watching an e-tag to see if things had changed, you know, having robots do our bidding for the future is definitely the direction in which things are going. Mm -hmm. And that direction should be, I make a change to config, I push it to my GitHub repo, and my Kubernetes deployment should be reacting to that push that I have made. 
That's exactly the case. That's how we do it here at CoreOS today within our infrastructure team. You know, we will have changes that are made to repositories. Then we have a whole series of tests that are done on those changes. You know, we use tools like Go Server Spec, um, which is just a generic Go implementation of the uh, Ruby tool server spec, uh, which will lint everything, kind of make sure that uh, the end state is going to be the thing that we actually expect. And we do some things like running Terraform Thumped, uh, Terraform Plan, you know, making sure that uh, all of the state changes that we're expressing are going to be sane. Uh, then we have the actual kind of CD system, which for us, uh, when I say CD, I mean continuous deployment, which for us is Jenkins, uh, have send us a Slack message saying, hey, we've ran all of these tests. This was the outcome of it. Do you want me to apply this? And that allows us to just respond in a very convenient manner to the CD system and say, yes, everything looks good. Go ahead and deploy it, um, which allows for a lot more collaboration. You know, it, you're much more likely to have members of the team see when things happen and kind of take action to ensure that there is different individuals who are providing that kind of check and balance for each other, as well as having the robots make sure that everything looks good. I mean, that's the beauty is as we push towards these more generic type developer workflows, you know, any, most developers at this point are familiar with the GitHub pull request model. So it allows us to take that same paradigm that developers are familiar with and move it into the infrastructure and operations space, which really enables different teams to interact a lot more efficiently. Terraform also can play a role here. So Terraform enables the basically the, the creation and the changing and the improvement of infrastructure. It's an infrastructure as code tool. How does Terraform fit into a Kubernetes deployment workflow? Well, for us, we realized, for us at CoreOS, we realized that Terraform was increasingly becoming a critical component for a lot of companies that were working on various cloud providers. So we embraced it very early on and kind of integrated it tightly with our installation workflow so that for anybody who was using Tectonic and anybody who already had Terraform in place, it made it super simple to bring up machines independent of the particular cloud provider. You know, I'm able to say, take the ideas of like a cloud formation on AWS, where I kind of give a domain specific language of the desired state of the outcome, except I can do that for many, many different cloud providers. You know, I can say, I wish to, from the same tool and the same DSL, I wish to have a kind of data center set up on packet with the following network kind of configurations and the following machines that are brought up, or I wish to have this VPC brought up on Amazon in this, this specific region, in this specific availability zones, and this is the kind of layout that I want for everything. And it has meant that by having that one tool, we're able to minimize the number of places that people have to interact with to make changes, uh, which has increased the overall efficiency of everybody working in the organization on these sorts of infrastructure build-outs. Mm -hmm. Let's switch to the topic of state management. So some state in Kubernetes is going to be managed by etcd. Other 
times you're going to be managing your storage and databases and blob storage and uh, object storage. Could you just give us a tour of the different ways of managing state in Kubernetes and where the domain-specific uh, applications with each of those storage technologies, you know, what what those applications are? Sure thing. So the you know you called out the important kind of locations for state, but I like to think about breaking it down slightly differently. You know, you have the state of the actual control plane and then the state of the data plane. The state of the control plane is going to be communications and the kind of expected pods that should be running, the actual content that gets represented inside of etcd. And in, on the data plane, that's the things that you, the, the runtime information about the applications that you're running. That's going to be the specific files that are getting served from an Nginx instance or you know, the contents of a Postgres server. And when you, you have to have slightly different processes for kind of managing these and backing them up and ensuring resiliency there. When you're managing that state for etcd and you know the API server, a lot of that is kind of handled automatically for you because that's the, the main value of having that control plane in place. You know, being able to go through and run backups of etcd where you serialize the data out for disaster recovery is important. But that's in the grand scheme of things, that's actually the easier piece to work with. For the data plane, where you need to make sure that you have kind of the contents of that relational database or all of the containers, keeping the manifests of how things are deployed is, is one piece. And a lot of folks at CoreOS tend to use Helm for that. So they'll actually templatize the applications that they want to run into a Helm chart then from there, depending on whether it's a stateful application or not, they may need to bring with them some type of storage. And using the generic concepts of storage classes within Kubernetes allows them to just say, okay, I need some persistent volume. I don't really care what the underlying mechanism that is managing that storage is, be it EBS if you were on top of Amazon Web Services, you know, or just a premium managed disk if you were on top of Azure. But being able to just say, I need five gigs, I don't care what it is, make it happen. And then kind of bringing that data with you means that you have this Helm chart that can define the runtime of the application. And then you just need to manage whatever that process would be, whether it was a bare metal machine or, or whatever it looks like today. You know, that's namely going to be whatever the native tools are for various applications. So being able to use PG dump or being able to kind of use curl to serialize or uh, instantiate data on that volume to get everything started. Hmm. You're describing a usage of Helm chart that I, I guess I didn't know. I'm uh, it's not totally familiar with this space, but my understanding of Helm was if you're basically creates a very simplified form of deploying something to a Kubernetes cluster. So if you want to deploy Cassandra, for example, Cassandra is a multi-node database and Helm gives you a way to just install it with just a few commands, which is 
kind of a big deal because I don't think we've had a really a distributed systems package manager in most of the times of the past. And I, you know, you could also do it for deploying something like WordPress. But you were describing it just now as people use Helm to deploy the application that their company is building. So perhaps, you know, for example, if I'm like Zendesk or some other SaaS company and I run on top of Kubernetes and I've got all these different services, maybe I can deploy all of those services at once across a Kubernetes cluster by putting it all into a Helm chart. Helm chart is this the description of the the systems that you're deploying on Kubernetes. Can you give more clarification for how people are using Helm to deploy their applications? Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, Helm, the primitives that are available in it, you know, allow you to do a lot of the templating of, you know, containers themselves, you know, the kind of pod specs, a lot of the different primitives that are available within Kubernetes. So, you know, when you are able to start mapping out the individual components of an application and then relate the kind of dependencies between them within that Helm chart, you're able to have this kind of much more atomic reference of an application as one single asset that allows you to both revision the individual pieces of it and allow kind of checkpointing at different points in time. So, you know, one workflow of that is, you know, for us internally, we have all of the various assets that run coreos.com, you know, account.coreos.com, things like that. So we are able to reference the constituent microservices for each of those as a, this is, you know, coreos.com version 1.0. This is coreos version 1.1. And then individual developers who are working on those kind of different internal versions of those applications can pull out everything together at one specific time by referencing that. Now, that's actually an important thing to note uh, and has been one point of friction for users of Helm up to this point is that there's a little bit of... I guess I could say looseness between semantic versioning of an application, semantic versioning of the container definition, the versioning of the Helm chart, the versioning of all of those things that get attached together. And, you know, you run into areas where, you know, the Helm chart might be version 1.0.2, but, you know, maybe it's referencing six different components that are all getting uh, reference together and kind of coming up with a way of knowing that you're getting all the pieces uh, that you want and being able to introspect that down to know that two folks are working on the things that they intend to be working on has has definitely been a little bit confusing for some users. So. I see. So let's go on to talk about networking. Containers communicate with each other in Kubernetes. This is networking. What are some common mistakes that people make when they're configuring their networking across Kubernetes? Well, one thing that I, I run into over and over and over again is folks using the same IP address ranges in every single environment. You know, the, the beauty of a VPC on Amazon is that you can use whatever IP address range that you want. And so when you're starting out in development, everything seems hunky-dory. You know, you're using 10.0.0.0 slash 
18. I'm using 10.0.0.0/18, and then we go and try to have both of our VPCs intercommunicate, or we try to set up a point-to-point VPN so that you know we can kind of bridge what is effectively two different data centers, and then we immediately have to start figuring out network address translation and all kinds of things that you know we should really be hoping to avoid in the second half of the second decade of the 21st century. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's CoreOS, we've put together some open source tools to kind of make it easier to work with those things. Uh, you know, Evan Chewy, which that's T-S-C-H-E-Y, or at Chewy uh, on GitHub, you know, wrote a tool uh, called Ciderblocks um, to help with some of that simplified calculation. You know, it actually just does one very opinionated thing. Uh, the AWS uh, solutions architecture team put out some guidelines a couple of years ago at this point on like how to quote unquote correctly uh, lay out the address space on an, a VPC so that you had private, public and protected network ranges. And this is just one more aspect of kind of, if you're in the average case, you don't necessarily, you may not have worked with a lot of networking in the past and having some of these tools that can go through and do the right things for you with a minimal amount of understanding to make sure that uh, folks do the right thing is always super helpful. So, you know, again, kind of reeling this back in, make sure that you don't use conflicting IP address ranges, kind of configure your DNS in such a way that ideally you can even use name server delegation down to your cluster to be able to use things like core DNS on the cluster to reflect back what the IP range or what the IP address of individual services is. And, you know, if you're using tooling like VPCs, it's super, super helpful to be able to configure those point-to-point VPNs so that you can just do vanilla routing. Uh, I mean, for us here at CoreOS, each we have multiple different cloud providers running with tectonic clusters in multiple different regions across those cloud providers. And by being able to plan that out correctly, we actually just do layer three routed traffic between a lot of the clusters and, you know, for developers here in like our office in San Francisco or Berlin or New York, they just reference those clusters by the kind of RFC 1918 10 dot addresses, and they don't have to do any kind of mapping over the public Internet. Everything's just done very, very cleanly. My most intimate introduction to the problems with multiple IP address mappings going to the same URL was uh, I actually made the mistake of I was I was moving my podcast feed from one host to another, and I did it in, I did it in a way where there was a period of time where I had the same domain name was mapping to multiple RSS feed IP addresses, and then so I updated the WordPress instance that backed the RSS feed on only one of those IP addresses, and it reeked havoc on my listeners because around that time I had uh, like 400 or 300 episodes that I had done in the back catalog. And the way that podcast players work for some reason is that if there is enough RSS feed confusion when they request that RSS feed, uh, they just try to download all of the episodes, whereas normally a podcast player is only going to download the most recent three episodes. So to make a long story short, because I made a mistake in my IP address mapping just on a 
freaking podcast, I ended up dosing my listeners. They, you know, I had a bunch of listeners who, who like emailed me and were like, "Hey, all of a sudden I downloaded 300 MP3 files onto my iPhone." And why did you do this to me? I'm unsubscribing from your show. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's terrible. I guess I'm never moving my podcast off of my host again. But I'm sure it gets significantly worse than that when you're talking about building people's critical infrastructure. Yeah, at, at the same time, you know, I am a firm believer in, you know, a lot of the way that a lot of software development and uh, computing has kind of progressed is, you know, we've put up so many guardrails and bumpers that uh, folks don't have the opportunity to just kind of skin their knee. Uh, you know, we're kind of running into the situation where if you trip, you fall off a cliff. <laughs> right. And I'd rather be in a situation where you can kind of skin your knee and, you know, learn what you don't know. And to some extent, you know, as these systems become more and more complex, it just means that we, we have to approach this very intentionally. We have to think about, like, what is the kind of crawl, walk, run model there? Because, like you said, you know, it's if you're in the boat where you don't know what you don't know, like, small things like that shouldn't necessarily cause, you know, somebody's phone to be downloading you know, 20 gigabytes worth of data. But... <laughs> I think that that's an opportunity also for some things that kind of we figured out in the past, but we still have yet to kind of port to Kubernetes, you know, things like being able to do better introspection of traffic that's coming into the cluster to detect some concerns like that. I mean, you know, not to necessarily blow anything up here, but, you know, how many folks who are just running an application on top of Kubernetes would know if somebody was trying to do a brute force attack, you know, on logins or, or anything else. I mean, we're in the situation now where when that application crashes because it's getting attacked, it'll just gracefully, you know, kind of come back up and everything will be good to go. And, you know, in the past, at least when that application crashed, you would get alerted, you come in and start taking a look. But, you know, I often see with, development clusters and folks who are starting out, you know, pods that are just in a crash loop and, you know, are restarting thousands of times an hour. And, and that gets into some of the next steps of kind of making sure that you've got alerting on these sorts of behaviors, making sure that uh, folks are kind of able to get that telemetry out to take action. Because, you know, it's great having these automated systems, but sometimes it just results in, you know, not being exposed to some of the more basic levels of taking a step back and digging into what's going on. Hmm. Well, let's talk more about those operational devices that people are going to be setting up. When you're deploying a Kubernetes cluster, You there's all these things that you might want, like log aggregation, monitoring, alerting. Maybe you want service proxying and service mesh. And I think of these setting up these these things within Kubernetes as the job of almost like a platform engineer who is responsible for setting those things up at an organization and I guess maybe what should be the process for a company when they're deploying Kubernetes how aggressively should they start to roll out things like log aggregation and service proxying and because these are all things that really they make your kubernetes cluster run much more smoothly 
But of course, they take time away from you actually working on application features. Yeah. So, you know, all of those functions that were historically part of an infrastructure team or a systems administration team, you know, I'm of the opinion that those sorts of things are still absolutely 100% required on Kubernetes. Now, I think that that is also one of the values of having different uh, distributions of Kubernetes because it gives different development teams on those upstream kind of distributions the ability to differentiate themselves. You know, I am of the opinion that you should not be deploying one cluster, let alone multiple clusters, if you don't have log aggregation or if you haven't thought through things like single sign-on. You know, those were just kind of the table stakes in the past for bringing up an entire environment. And I don't think that Kubernetes is any different. Now, what I do think is the bigger opportunity there is that, you know, as we transition into what I call the realm of the iPhone, you know, you and I were briefly talking at uh, KubeCon uh, about your, uh, you know, copying and pasting from Stack Overflow sticker. (laughs) And, you know, one of my colleagues here at CoreOS, you know, he's kind of very romantic about the the previous days of the bespoke systems and you know the fact that you had to go in and, and handcraft everything and how you know there's been something lost by the fact that uh, that is knowledge that is less and less commonplace but you know i am kind of well there is a twinge of, of my heartstrings that get tugged every time i i think about you know what it takes to bring up you know pre-execution environment from scratch or things, you know, I, I don't think that that knowledge is ultimately that important, especially as we're able to build more tooling that solves that. And I want to see us get to the era where it's not considered, you know, the era of copying and pasting from Stack Overflow, but it's more the era of, you know, the iPhone where, you know, you turn that device on and it works. And if for some reason, it locks up. You don't, the average person, I should say, I mean, I still do this, but you know, the average person doesn't just hook up a cable, fire up you know, a remote debugger and start digging into it. They should be able to treat it more like you know, just a robot that you know, they kind of grind down to the parts, recycle and instantiate again. And having all of those common core infrastructure pieces deployed every single time, like log aggregation, like a service mesh, like kind of ingress and egress filtering and stuff is just going to get it to the point where folks know what is coming, batteries included in a cluster, what resources they can expect to be there. I mean, one other kind of important thing there is, you know, when we started working on Kubernetes years ago, you know, I was talking to Alex Bolvi, our CEO, and, you know, he pointed out that, you know, we're kind of in this era of bootstrapping the iPhone and how basically there is no app store yet. So everybody is going to have to fix all of their applications. And the thing that I pointed out to him was that even when the first iPhone came out, there were still certain core applications there. There was dialer, there was notes, there was contacts. And I think that a lot of these things like log aggregation, while I prefer the kind of you can swap it out for the flavor of that that you prefer, you know, if you want to use Sensu versus Prometheus and Alert Manager, you can do that. I I think that getting towards that point where we all agree on 
kind of what those common services are and that they're always going to be included and what the individual services are is more implementation detail is going to be the ultimate experience for developers that makes them much more apt to use the system and much happier about using the system. Mm. Well, there's a lot there. I mean, when you talk about the nostalgia for the days of knowing what to do rather than having to look up something on Stack Overflow, I don't know. I mean, I going to Stack Overflow and copying and pasting some code, even that to me feels like looking up opcodes in a textbook, which is what people had to do in the past. You're, you know, it's like, why are, why do I have to look up something on a web? Why do I have to do this endless Googling? And why, why am I not just engaging with this platform, like the creative palette that it could be? And it's because we're in early days, I think. I mean, I don't know if you saw Brendan Burns, his keynote. I actually did not see it either, but I just know the name of it was basically, this is still too hard. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, that was all the medical meta particle stuff. And I, I, I agree with her. Like, I firmly believe that, you know, we need to ensure that this knowledge doesn't die out because, you know, I don't want to get to the point where, you know, the contents of the Library of Alexandria get lost, but it is decreasingly important. Like, you know, when you track the overall level of technical understanding that an individual user needed to have to use a computer, you know, that level of technical understanding has continued to trend downwards as the number of computers that individuals interact with increases. And I do believe that that's the correct direction. But, you know, understanding that opcodes are even a thing should not be the kind of table stakes there. And again, I I do firmly believe that what that Brendan's ideas about MetaParticle are absolutely the path for the future. You know, there's a few aspects of it where I take a look at it and I, I scratch my head about it. But at the same time, I very firmly believe that I am also, despite the code that I write, I am not a developer. You know, I fundamentally approach things from a very different angle. Right. And so I think the meta particle idea is, if I remember correctly, it's it's like a language level distributed systems primitive where you could have a variable that is it's kind of like a replicated variable and it's it's so it's, it has the durability of a replicated data store but it's not a toy project i don't want to call it a toy project because i know he has intentions to make it a bigger and better thing but even if you just look at it as a toy project it's kind of interesting what happens when you move replication to the uh, well i'm not putting it right but what do you think he's he's trying to do with that that project where you when you move distributed systems concepts into the the level of the application developer? Well, I think the easiest way for me to summarize that is he's just trying to make it something that's a part of the standard library. You know, in the same way that, you know, had Ken Thompson known that HTTP or known no, HTTP would be so ubiquitous, or known that every application effectively would be a network application. I think we would have seen very different things in you know the initial versions of C. And what Brendan is trying to do is take all of those ideas of what we now know are just the things that every application kind of needs to potentially be aware of, 
and putting that into one standard library so that you can start out with the basic development of your application and then later go, oh, I need to be able to shard this application. So let me kind of just go and use the functions of that library and say, application, now you shard. And then take that a bit further and go, okay, now I want the shards to be able to each handle a quantile of traffic. You know, these are, frankly put, they're components or they're disciplines that have been learned over years of building these systems and then having to scrap them and rebuild them. So, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of a lot of giants who have figured all of this out. And it's taking that knowledge of all of those different domain disciplines and putting it into one small uh, contract where we know that all of the kind of functionality of that is always going to be available. So you don't need to you know, pack a toolbox into the back of your car. You know, you can kind of accept that you now things are going to run reliably enough that we don't need to bring jumper cables with us every time. Or, you know, we don't need to carry an empty gas can. So to talk more about operations, which was a lot of what your talk at KubeCon was about, you were talking about multi-cloud deployments let's just start with a naive question. Why do people want to deploy Kubernetes to multiple clouds? Well, for that, I think there's two fundamental reasons. One, I agree with in my heart, but I think that it's a little bit flawed. And the other, I think, is very, very legitimate. You know, the legitimate reason is, is that you want to be able to kind of really guarantee high availability in that sense. That is the kind of rewinding back in the day. You know, you have one data center uh, where you're kind of subletting a cage out of level three or Equinix, and then you've got your own data center. And the reason why you're doing that is you want to have enough heterogeneity in your environments to be able to really guarantee that you have resilience against a lot of different types of failures. So that is to say that, you know, you know that if you're deploying something to, you know, S3 in US East, that when a tornado comes through and takes out that data center, that you don't lose availability because you also have copies of your files sitting in a bucket on top of Google storage. Now, the area where I think that folks are a little bit flawed just because of the technical level of what it takes is the kind of race to the bottom in price. So I want to live in a world where the compute truly is commodified so that I can just up and switch everything from one provider to another in a moment's notice. You know, I see that, uh, you know, the spot pricing on AWS has now dropped to a point where it's worth, you know, moving everything off of some random OpenStack provider. Or conversely, that, you know, I know that the pricing on packet.net has gotten down far enough that I can consolidate a bunch of my resources from AWS and, and move them across. But the complexity of some of the API changes that need to occur is not something that is just immediately swappable or immediately movable. Now, that ultimately is where the value of those built-in components like storage classes within Kubernetes that I was mentioning earlier start to prove me wrong. 
And I have to say, I'm happy to be proved wrong. Like I said, it's ultimately the place that I want to get to. I want to see the underlying cloud be agnostic from the workload. But for a lot of uh, organizations, you know, they are using something like Amazon SQS. And if you're using Amazon SQS, you now can't just swap over to another cloud provider. Now, the value of Kubernetes means that if we can build out various open cloud services and then use those open cloud services atop, now you have gotten back to that point where you're abstracting the storage, you're abstracting what is providing, you know, an AMQP interface, what is providing, you know, a relational database. Mm -hmm. This is a big deal. It is. It is. It's very exciting to me. You know, one thing Brendan said that I've just been thinking about when I interviewed him recently that I've just been thinking about since he said it was, you could imagine a world where people start to make money off of proprietary binaries that you sell that they sell to you that you could deploy on any cloud provider. So like if you can imagine if all of the different cloud providers are running Kubernetes and let's say I'm a developer and I write a let's just say I write a better WordPress. I write a new WordPress and I sell you the WordPress binary for $99 and then you go and deploy it on whatever cloud you want and you get a license forever and you can just use it forever. That could be a business model. It absolutely could be. And, you know, it's, I think it's a huge opportunity for developers as we have increased also with the ubiquity of cross OS and cross chip architecture uh, programming languages, you know, like Golang, where you can kind of set your Go Arch variable and compile down to, you know, ARM64 or Raspberry Pi, you know, ARM7 or just kind of vanilla Intel x86-64, taking all of these various cloud providers now where you can then render out that one binary and run it on that cloud provider in whatever mechanism you want is going to mean that for developers who have those brilliant ideas and want to build those better mousetraps, that it's easier for them to get started and ensure that it will run in a consistent way. Because, you know, once you build the application, you then have to support it. And that's the the part that's a lot less fun. So if we can make that easier for folks to do as well, would hope to see, you know, thousands of applications bloom in that field. Mm-hmm. I know that our time is running short. I've heard both of our calendars tolling. But, uh, you know, talking a little bit about these Kubernetes as a service providers, when I was at KubeCon and I saw you there, I was you know, walking among the expo hall and must have saw 15 or 20 different Kubernetes as a service providers. Tectonic is a Kubernetes as a service provider that comes from CoreOS. Maybe you could talk about what are the subjective decisions that you can make when you're architecting a Kubernetes as a service? Well, some of the first kind of important one is deciding how much you insist upon owning, you being the service provider, and how much flexibility you're going to provide the customer. It's very easy to take and stand up control plane or, or run that control plane on behalf of users. You know, if you're doing that, then bringing nodes is super, super simple. But 
you need to be able to answer the question for your users, you know, like what API flags are you going to dictate will be run? You know, or on the flip side, are we just going to allow our users to tell us every single API flag that they want run? And you know, the one of the differences between what CoreOS is doing with Tectonic is we provide that service model of you know, managing the lifecycle updates of the Kubernetes components and you know, increasingly applications that run atop that cluster, as well as the host operating system. But we provide that on the customer's own premise, be that within their data center or within Amazon or GCP, which is definitely a, a different model than what a lot of the folks at KubeCon were doing. I think it is, you know, and will continue to be our differentiator because from the start, we have led with this idea that we are going to do things in a very opinionated manner, but we want users to ultimately have the control there, which there is no greater control than running on your own hardware in your own environment, like within your own network configuration. And that definitely presents a challenge because, you know, user A decides that they just have to have BGP while user B decides that, you know, they want everything in an overlay network. And you have to be able to give folks the knobs while at the same time knowing and being able to measure exactly where you draw those lines to ensure that folks aren't shooting themselves in the foot or that they aren't going to break automated updates or things like that. So the CoreOS customer base, is that predominantly people who are deploying to their own infrastructure? Yes. I mean, that's what we try to uh, really focus on. Now, that is to say, uh, we have a lot of users that will deploy both to AWS and to their own data center. You know, in that sense, it is still arguably their infrastructure because, you know, they're kind of defining the various configurations on the host, you know, they're stating, you know, everything's going to use this specific time server, but it is that flexibility regardless of kind of the underlying provider. And that's kind of how we end up working with the customers to provide them the value for using Tectonic versus using other Kubernetes distributions. Hmm. To wrap up, I'd just love to get any interesting business prognostications that you might have like how is kubernetes going to change the dynamic between cloud providers is it going to allow for the emergence of artisanal cloud providers <laughs> what other kinds of business models does the shift towards kubernetes uh, expose give me your most uh, your cr craziest theories about how business will change because of this shift in infrastructure oh uh, well my, my craziest gets pretty crazy but you know kind of taking a stab at this, I have seen a lot of folks who are kind of pushing the ideas of, you know, the, the function as a service model. And while it's still extremely early days, I've seen that proved out uh, in parallel with the increase of both popularity in tools like Zapier and If This Then That, but also the open source kind of equivalents like uh, Hugin, and then all of the various competitors that are propping up, even all the way out to Microsoft, you know, releasing uh, Microsoft Flow. So having those 
proprietary engines for being able to start to glue together all of the various microservices is going to be an increasingly popular model. It's tragic that Yahoo Pipes, you know, was the first there and the first is generally not the most successful, but the as Kubernetes also increases in popularity, it's going to make it easier for folks to kind of even have cross Kubernetes interaction of applications, you know, having things where, uh, you know, you're able to send a Slack message and interact with a service uh, from one provider who then triggers, you know, some action on a function running on OpenFAS somewhere that then talks to, you know, an RSS feed to pull some data down and then push that off to yet another service provider. And I want to see us get to the point of kind of having these greater meshes partially to simplify the amount of work that anyone needs to do. Now, if we can do that in an open source manner, that's the part that'll really uh, get me truly excited and kind of have every cockle in my heart to uh, singing for joy. But, you know, at the same time, I also want to make sure that folks who have these ideas aren't necessarily burdened by uh, being able to find a sponsor because, you know, ultimately having that good idea used to be all that you needed. And uh, as folks are now competing with bigger and bigger giants, they have a, a little bit of a tougher road to hoe. So, mm. Agreed. Okay. Well, useful words. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Of course. Of course. Thank you. And have a fantastic afternoon. Wow. 